Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's my pleasure to read the scripture that we'll be studying this morning. Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 20. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the word of, oh, excuse me, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. All right, everybody. So, well, again, if you don't know me or you're watching online, yes, I think they did get the stream running. Um, uh, my name's Colton Tatham, so I'm the Journey Bible Church's West Campus pastor. So uh, let's give an applause just for our tech guys for just you know sticking it out. Thank you, guys. And if the sound isn't working, this will look really silly on YouTube right now. So uh, that's great, too. So <laughs> you're laughing because I'm not sure if it's really working yet. So no, there we go. Jack's shaking his head no. So good try, guys. So <laughs> anyways, we're coming to the end of our uh, sermon series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And the last couple of weeks, we examined what Ephesians teaches us about standing firm in first the spiritual darkness in this world standing firm in the spiritual armor, if you remember, that we put on, and then standing firm in the spiritual armor that we take up. And if you missed any of those messages, those are actually live on our YouTube channel that you can watch another time. But you see, for each piece of armor, uh, we looked at how historians described the actual equipment that ancient Roman soldiers would wear, and then we looked at the biblical, symbolic, and spiritual significance of what that kind of represented for us as followers of Jesus. Now, the Bible makes it clear that a believer's weapons and armor are not the world's weapons and armor. We're called to take up the whole armor of God, namely the belt of God's truth, the breastplate of God's righteousness, the shoes of God's gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Together, all six pieces of this armor make for an impenetrable spiritual defense and also an unstoppable spiritual offense. Now, there's an old Christian author who wrote quite a bit about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Uh, His name's John Bunyan, and he's the author of a fictional classic called Pilgrim's Progress. In his original book, it was actually written all the way back in the 1600s, but it continues to be a pretty popular book these days. 
Now, the image on the screen behind me is an illustration from the modern children's version called Little Pilgrim's Progress by Helen Taylor. I think we might have a few copies at our bookstore over there just if you want to skim through. But it's a sketch of little Christian standing firm in the whole armor of God. Now, the reason why I like this particular children's illustration is because it's a little reminder. It's a little reminder that you don't have to wait until you're an adult before you can start standing firm in God's armor. By grace through faith, God protects the young and the old alike. Now, I want to read you a quote from John Bunyan, and it's one that I feel effectively kind of summarizes what it means to put on the whole armor of God that we've looked at in Ephesians 6. John Bunyan wrote, Christ himself is the Christian's armory. Again, Christ himself is the Christian's armory. What this means is that when he puts on Christ, he is then completely armed from head to foot. Are his loins girt about with truth? Christ is the truth. Has he put on the breastplate of righteousness? Christ is our righteousness. Are his feet shod with gospel peace? Christ is our peace. Does he take the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation? Christ is that shield and all our salvation. Does he take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? Christ is the word of God. Thus, he puts on the Lord Jesus Christ. By his Spirit, fights the fight of faith. And in spite of men, devils, and the evils of his own heart, he lays hold of eternal life. Thus, Christ is all in all. Now, I hope you caught John Bunyan's point there in this quote. Christ himself is the Christian's armory. Whatever piece of God's spiritual equipment that you put on from Ephesians 6, it's ultimately a picture of what it means to be spiritually transformed by taking up our faith in Jesus. This is because Christ is our truth. Christ is our righteousness, Christ is our peace, Christ is our faith, Christ is our salvation, and Christ is our word. The moment that you become a Christian is the moment that Christ becomes all in all for you. Now, as many of you know, that when it comes to warfare, there's a big difference between an armory and tactics, The armory is your side's military equipment, but tactics are how your side uses that military equipment. Sometimes even a powerful armory with poor tactics can lead to major defeats. You know, one historical example of this comes from World War I. Um, Although the British ultimately emerged on the winning side of the war, they suffered countless defeats in battle to get there. Additionally, their army emerged with a new nickname. Um, In the, you know, mid, kind of like 1920s, the British army came to be known as Lions Led by Donkeys. After a series of catastrophic tactical failures, Their soldiers, their infantry, actually had a terrific reputation. They were well-trained, they were well-disciplined, they were well-armed, they were quite brave. But their commanders, they were just truly horrible. 
You know, one of those failed tacticians was a British commander by the name of Sir Douglas Haig. Encyclopedia Britannica ranks Haig as one of the nine worst military generals in history. Here's why. Haig commanded hundreds of thousands, let me stress that, hundreds of thousands of British soldiers along the trenches of the Western Front against Germany. But you see, Haig had a problem. His military tactics were stuck in a pre-industrial revolution mindset. So according to Britannica, Haig had largely dismissed the effectiveness of the machine gun on the battlefield, believing that previous Allied failures were caused by something other than an impenetrable wall of lead bullets fired at ballistic velocity. Thus, on July 1st, 1916, Haig ordered his men to go over the top of the trenches in one battle, and 20,000 of them died almost immediately. There were 60,000 total British casualties on the first day of this attack. Haig saw no reason to change tactics. He continued to view attrition as the most effective strategy in defeating Germany. The British lost some 420,000 men as this summer offensive uh, continued. The next major British offensive came the following year on July 31st, where Haig lost another 275,000 troops in battle by November 6th that same year. His name became synonymous with pointless slaughter. After the war, the phrase, Lions led by donkeys described the British infantry, how the British infantry were led by just generals culpable of countless, unfathomable, incompetent tactical decisions. In his hubris, Haig was convinced the British would overwhelm Germany with more troops and outlast them through attrition. Haig had a great and powerful armory but he was a horrible tactician who was proud and who underestimated his opponent. Now, Haig's history is a spiritual warning to us as Christians. Let us not become lions led by donkeys. And let's not let the local church and our community become a lion led by donkeys. The point is, is that you can't just have a spiritual armory you've also got to have spiritual tactics too. Thankfully, that's what we find in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. So if you look there at your Bibles or your bulletins, look there at those, uh, those last two, three verses there, 18, 19, and 20. You know, after instructing us to stand firm in the armor of God, this is what it says. It says we are to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, we can notice the Apostle Paul, he's the one that's writing in the first person here. He calls himself an ambassador in chains in verse 20, and in doing so, he's referring to his house arrest in Rome when he wrote this around 60 AD. 
In effect, Paul is like a prisoner of war who has literally been incarcerated for proclaiming his faith in Jesus Christ. The book of Acts teaches us that Paul went from a persecutor of Jesus to a proclaimer of Jesus to a prisoner for Jesus. This prisoner of war describes the Christian's armory in verses 13 to 17, and then describes the Christian's battle tactics in verses 18 through 20. We can see what those tactics are. They're prayer, perseverance, and proclamation. If we don't want to end up as lions led by donkeys, then we need prayer, perseverance, and proclamation in our lives. Now, a few sermons ago, we looked carefully at the tactics that the devil used in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve, and in Luke 4 in the wilderness with Jesus. And we discovered that in both encounters with temptation, the adversary used three primary tactics, doubt, deceit, and desire. Satan, if you will recall, employed doubt by asking, hey, Adam and Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat that forbidden fruit? And to Jesus, you know, if you really are the Son of God, prove it, doubt. Employing deceit, he said, Adam and Eve, you shall surely not die if you eat the fruit. And Jesus, you shall surely not die if you throw yourself down from this temple. And employing desire, he said, well, Adam and Eve, don't you want to become more like God? And to Jesus, don't you want to rule over everything I rule over? Doubt, deceit, and desire. What these encounters in the Bible teach us is that human beings, the spiritual forces of darkness, and even our own hearts will try to lead us astray through doubt, deceit, and desire. If we want to counteract the enemy tactics, though, not only do we need the armory of Christ, we need the tactics of Christ, too, prayer, perseverance, and proclamation. So let's spend some time unpacking what the Bible teaches about these three tactics today. And kind of just as a heads up, we're going to spend most of the time in the rest of this message on the first tactic, and then as we close the message with perseverance and uh, proclamation. You know, all are vitally important tactics for the Christian life, but considering, if you look at the context of these verses, they're actually Paul's own prayer request. I think it's appropriate we spend a little more time on prayer today. So let's look there again. Our first battle tactic is prayer, and if we look at verse 18, we see something. We can see that the word all occurs four times in relation to prayer. We're called to be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We see all times, all prayer, all perseverance, all saints. So what do these four alls mean? Well, first, we're told to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Notice that verse 18 doesn't just say all times, though. It says we're to be praying all times in the Spirit. You know, that's an important qualifier there. 
If you're not praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, then you're heaping up your prayers to God at, you know, at all times. Well, that isn't really likely to give you a tactical advantage without the Spirit. That's actually more of a tactical liability. The advantage, the tactical advantage, only comes from praying in the Spirit at all times. Now, how do we do that? Well, back at the beginning of the letter, according to Ephesians 1.13, you've got to first be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You cannot pray in the Spirit if you're not first sealed by the Spirit. Now, we started the sermon series back in 2021, and some of us were still meeting in the warehouse on the other side of town. So just by a raise of hands, how many were there in the warehouse? Just a few of you, yeah? Got a few people. Thank you, guys. So, you know, if you weren't there, or if you don't perfectly recall everything I preach, for those of you that were there, if you don't perfectly recall, Nicholas, yeah, thank you. So one of our messages was actually about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In that message, we talked about three spiritual realities that happen the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. To be sealed with God's Spirit means first we become royally marked, kind of like a signet seal. We become royally marked as God's chosen heirs according to Ephesians 1. Uh, Secondly, it also means that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our souls as kind of a spiritual deposit of our redemption of Jesus Christ on this side of heaven. And lastly, it means that our souls are eternally secured by the Spirit. Once we've been sealed in the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus, we become blessed with countless spiritual benefits, and perhaps the chief among them is the spiritual power of prayer. Now, if the Trinity or the Holy Spirit is you know, something that you want to you know, learn more about, then be sure to check out our messages on Ephesians 1, especially you, Nicholas. So, memory loss guy, no, it's okay. <laughs> Nicholas is a smart dude, so... But, you know, the point is, is that if you're a true follower of Jesus, you know, if you truly follow him, you you don't need to doubt if you've been sealed with the Spirit. That's not something you need to doubt. You can rest assured that if you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And because of this, you've been given an incredible spiritual power to communicate with God with your thoughts and with your words. And best of all, God hears your heart. In the Spirit, you can constantly communicate with God. In the Spirit, you can communicate anywhere with God. So pray as much as you can and pray wherever you can. Doubt, deceit, and desire can happen anytime and anywhere. However, if we actively wield the spiritual power of prayer, then we can counteract doubt, deceit, and desire anytime and anywhere. The amazing part about praying at all times in the Spirit is that this is something that God also helps us to do. We're not left to do it alone. You see, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul writes about the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 26 through 27, he says, "'Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness.'" For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, prays for us with groanings too deep for words. What the Scripture says is that God's Spirit 
in you is actively praying for you. Even in your weakness, you are always on God's mind. Even in your struggles, you are always on God's mind. But here's the thing. If we as Christians do not actively and consistently and consciously pray more to God, then we will be numb to the Spirit's intercession on our behalf. We won't sense it. We won't feel it. It's happening, but we won't be aware of it. Again, don't end up a lion led by a donkey. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in prayer. Let the Holy Spirit lead your prayers into deeper communion and faith in God by praying more. And in the Spirit, pray as much as you can and pray wherever you can. So what exactly, though, do we pray for? Well, that's what our next all in Ephesians 6.18 kind of tells us. We are to be praying first at all times in the Spirit, and second with all prayer and supplication. Now, in reading this verse, the language is purposefully redundant. It says we are to be praying with all prayer. We are to be praying with all prayer. That may sound kind of circular to us in English, but here's what this redundancy is emphasizing in verse 18. God's Word is emphasizing that we should pray, and we should pray for everything. We should be praying for everything and anything that comes to our minds because there is nothing that you cannot bring before God in prayer. Now, in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he answers this question. He answers this question, why pray? Listen to what he writes. He says, prayer is not made so that God can find out what you need. Because Jesus tells us, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, Matthew 6, 8. God wants us to pray because prayer expresses our trust in God and is a means whereby our trust in Him can increase. In fact, perhaps the primary emphasis of the Bible's teaching on prayer is that we are to pray with faith. Praying in humble dependence is also, in, also indicates that we are genuinely convinced of God's wisdom, love, goodness, and power. Indeed, all the attributes that make up His excellent character. When we truly pray, we as persons, in the wholeness of our character, are relating to God as a person in the wholeness of His character. Thus, all that we think or feel about God comes to expression in our prayer. To reiterate, God doesn't need us to pray. God doesn't divinely depend on our prayers. God doesn't magically exist because we pray. But if we want to personally experience God in a real relational way, then just like we would with any other person, We've got to talk to Him, believing He is the great I Am. The beauty is that in the fullness of faith-filled and Spirit-filled prayer, we are personally sharing our hearts and minds with the all-powerful Lord of heaven and earth. And even if the world thinks that our problems are trivial, God is the good king who has the wisdom and love to hear any petition we bring him. 
God wants to hear us pray with faith. He may not need it, but he wants it. And he's delighted when we pray in faith. Now, if we look at verse 18 with the words prayer and supplication kind of right there side by side, and there are different words in the original Greek just as they are in the English there, but in Greek they have almost the exact same meaning. Prayer and supplication in Greek really mean to petition or to make a request, to express a need, or more simply, it means to ask, ask for something. So, Pray with all asking and asking is kind of what Paul is saying here. The word fundamentally means to ask God. The tactical reason to pray for everything is that you've got to ask God before you get an answer from God. Again, you've got to ask God before you get an answer from God. In warfare, communication is key. If soldiers aren't communicating clearly with their commanders or vice versa, then it can become difficult to follow orders, and the same is true with us and God. In love or marriage, communication is also key. If two spouses aren't communicating clearly with each other, then it can become difficult to know what each one is passionate for in their relationship. Again, the same is true with us and God. If we're finding it difficult to overcome a particular self-destructive doubt, or if we're finding it difficult to resist a desire that we know is harmful, then how can we expect to be obedient to God's orders if we're not communicating with God in prayer? In faith, we've got to personally ask God for help first before we can expect God to answer. Nothing is too small to ask God in prayer. Nothing is too shocking to ask God in prayer. And nothing is too big to ask God in prayer. God already knows all, hears all, and sees all. Yet when we ask God for something in prayer, he's helping us to personalize our faith in him. And he does this because our God is a personal God. Now, this brings us to the third all in verse 18. Ephesians 6.18 says we're to be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, with all asking and more asking, and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. God longs to see us pray at all times for all needs and not give up. So this is the third all. God's word is telling us, don't give up praying. Don't give up praying. Now the phrase, keep alert, in verse 18 has a rich tradition in Christianity referring to prayer. It comes from Jesus' teaching in Mark 14, 38, in which he says, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that you may not fall victim to enemy battle tactics. The spirit in you indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. With Jesus' words in mind, keeping alert has to do with proactively watching for where temptation could strike in your life. Keeping alert means being ready for unexpected outcomes that might cause us to doubt. Being alert means being ready for maybe a duplicitous person 
that might deceive us so that they can get ahead. Being ready, keeping alert, means looking for sudden situations where a desire could get the better of us. The challenge, though, with keeping alert is that it requires our ongoing perseverance in prayer. You can't give up and keep alert. We keep alert by staying alert. You see, one way that spiritual darkness attacks is through the form of doubt in our prayer life. Doubting is itself an undoing of faith. And a prayer filled with doubt is a prayer that's missing its faith. When we're tempted to give up in prayer, then that's when we need to especially watch out. We need to keep alert. We need to persevere lest our doubt leads us into following a donkey rather than to following the Spirit of God. Again, God doesn't depend on our prayers, though. No matter how much we could try, our prayers are not incantations that can force God to just bend reality to our will. God doesn't always answer our prayers in the ways that we want. Sometimes, in His wisdom, He does. Sometimes, in His wisdom, He does not. Even so, we've got to persevere in praying. In faith, we've got to ask God to help us see His answer, to see His answer to our prayers, not always in the ways we ask for, but in the ways that we need to more faithfully follow Jesus. Now, finally there, let's look at this fourth all in verse 18. Vision 6.18 says, We're to be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, all asking and asking for more, and then, and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication more asking for all the saints. So in verse 18, we have the word supplication there again. So we see the word prayer, or pray, is repeated twice, and the word supplication is repeated twice. And again, both mean to ask God for his help. However, the emphasis this time is to ask God to help all the saints. Now, in some religious traditions, a saint is some kind of super-Christian, to kind of put it bluntly. And you can't become a saint unless you're like, kind of like a superhero, develop some sort of magical, supernatural miracles and powers that have been witnessed by others. Now, that's not a tradition that we here at Journey Bible Church ascribe to, um, and that's not what's being referred to here in the Bible. Paul is not telling us to only pray for all the super-Christians. Uh, and then the rest of us ordinary Christians, well, you know, get around to praying for them when you can, so... Now, the Greek word here for saints is agion, and in English, it can be translated, and it's probably better translated as holy ones. Agion, holy ones, not saints. So this is what's really being said here. Paul is calling for the Ephesians to pray for all the holy ones. More precisely, he's calling for the Ephesian Christians to pray for every man, every woman, and every child who would be made holy by God through salvation in Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. In other words, more simply, he's saying that believers need to pray for all believers. You see, the letter to Ephesians is filled with written prayers. If we look back at Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this, 
He says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, all the holy ones, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Then in chapter 3, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven, not just the special families, every family in heaven and on earth is named, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, all the holy ones, not the special people, all the believers, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And then finally, here in Ephesians 6, when Paul is giving instructions for how to pray, he then asks the Ephesians not only to join him in praying for all the saints, all the holy ones that he's been praying for, but in verse 19, he asks them to pray for him also. What Ephesians shows us is that God longs for the church to be praying for every follower of Jesus, whether you know them by name or not. So perhaps a real practical application for us here at Journey is really just to ask yourself, who's someone in the congregation that you could pray for this week that you maybe haven't prayed for before? Maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but who's someone that you could pray for faithfully this week? Now, by way of review, how does the Christian use prayer as a spiritual battle tactic? We've put on the armor of God, now how are we to fight with it? Well, according to Ephesians 6.18, we use prayer as a battle tactic at all times, for all needs, without giving up, and for all believers. Again, we pray at all times and for all needs without giving up for all believers. Prayer is our first spiritual battle tactic. But we have two more that I briefly want to look at as we close our message. They are perseverance and proclamation. Now, as we can see in Ephesians, perseverance is more than just our prayer life. We need perseverance in prayer, but we also need perseverance in suffering when things don't go our way, and we need it in our proclamation. With respect to perseverance, we don't just see this tactic in Paul's instruction to keep alert and pray with perseverance in verse 18, but we actually see perseverance in Paul's own situation that he alludes to in verses 19 through 20. Again, the apostle Paul is imprisoned as he writes this. He's imprisoned in Rome. He was a believer suffering for his faith in Jesus Christ, yet he was also persevering by his faith in order to encourage the church with the word of God until his eventual release or execution. At the time he wrote this, it hadn't been decided. It's no wonder that we don't also see perseverance in Paul's prayer request. He instructs the Ephesians in verse 18 to pray with perseverance with respects to all saints, and then he continues that by saying, pray with all perseverance with respect to me. I need your prayer too. He then asks them to keep praying for other believers. And in verse 19, he's saying, keep praying for me. Ephesians, don't give up praying for me. Even though I am an ambassador in chains, there are still people that need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, whom God is calling me to preach to. 
Like prayer, perseverance is one of those spiritual tactics that's always good to use, especially when you combine it with other spiritual tactics. It's kind of like the high ground in Star Wars. Do we have any Star Wars fans here? I know a couple. Yes. So some of you are familiar with the high ground. Every true Star Wars fan, if you're not one, uh, excuse the illustration or bear with me, um, you can't defeat a Jedi who has the high ground. It's just impossible. The Jedi has the high ground. They're impervious to danger. In episode three, Revenge of the Sith, uh, Obi-Wan and his former apprentice, Anakin, they're having this epic lightsaber duel that lasts like 20 minutes in the film across the lava plains of the planet Mustafar. But their duel comes to an end when Obi-Wan gains the tactical advantage, namely the high ground. He warns his former apprentice who has the low ground near the lava not to attack or he'd be struck down. But Anakin, who had already given into the dark side as Darth Vader, attacks Obi-Wan anyways. Like a lion led by a donkey, Anakin is struck down by Obi-Wan, defeated by the high ground. In many ways, our spiritual perseverance in Christ, for Christ, in Christ and for Christ, is like Obi-Wan's high ground. When you keep persevering, in faithful prayer in Jesus' name. When you keep persevering in faithful suffering for Jesus' name, and when you keep persevering in faithful proclamation of Jesus' name, then God is going to be your refuge against the darkness. And God is going to use you to strike back against the darkness. There is no higher ground, so to say, on this side of heaven than persevering for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much more that we could say about what it looks like to use perseverance to your tactical advantage as a Christian. Uh, we can look at how James says that it leads to joy, or we can look at how Romans says that it makes us more like Christ, but I do want to have enough time to close our message out with an observation on the tactics of proclamation. So if you look there at verses 19 through 20 in Ephesians 6, it says, And pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, what I want us to see here is how proclamation is a word-oriented tactic. Look carefully at what Paul asked for in prayer from the Ephesians. He asked that words may be given to him. He asked that he would open his mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel. He asked that he would declare the gospel boldly. He asked that he would speak the gospel as he ought. Now, if you've ever heard someone say, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, then that person clearly hasn't read Ephesians 6 very carefully. In essence, Paul shows us in his prayer request that he cannot proclaim the gospel without using words. Remember that last week we saw that the sword of the Spirit is in fact the Word of God. God uses words to reveal to us the Bible. 
and to reveal to us the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must use words too. We must use our words like God. We must use our words like Jesus. We must use our words like Paul. For you see, no one can proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior in silence. It's good to pray. It's better to pray with perseverance. But Ephesians demonstrates through Paul's own example that it is best to pray with perseverance that God would help you to proclaim the good news of Jesus to others wherever you're at. Biblically speaking, his example is an example of spiritual tactical superiority at its peak. Now, whether it's a Roman prison or an Ephesian marketplace or even an American coffee shop, anywhere can be a place where God calls you to use your own words to describe the good news of how Jesus redeemed you. Jesus himself has given the church the great mission to go and make disciples of all nations. And if we want to let the earth hear God's voice, then as Christians, we cannot be afraid to let the earth hear our voice too. As Romans 10 declares, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Journey Bible Church, let's pray in Jesus' name. Let's persevere for Jesus' name. And let's not be afraid to proclaim Jesus' name. As we close our message now, let's ask God for his help to carry out these tactics as we go into our week. So would you pray with me? Father God, you are the all-wise, all-knowing, righteous king. You've sent your son Jesus to secure victory on the cross in the spiritual war that our world finds itself in. So God, please forgive us for our self-destructive doubts, our weakness for deceit, and our rebellious desires. God, by your Holy Spirit, put in those of us who've rested our faith in Jesus a new heart. God, renew in us a passion to pray at all times for all needs without giving up and for all believers, past, present, and future. God, lend us your strength to stand firm as we faithfully persevere through life's most difficult trials and tribulations. And God, give us that same courage you gave Paul in Ephesians to boldly proclaim the message of salvation in Jesus to others. Lord, all this we pray in his name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, everybody, well, thank you for worshiping with us today. Um, Just so you know, until the end of the month, we'll be back to normal Sundays, so that means we'll start our fellowship hour at 11 o'clock, 
So kids ministry down the south hallway. We have adult and student groups meeting down the west hallway. I'll be leading the student group today. So for those of you sticking around, you get me. Yay. So we'll probably talk about Star Wars. So uh, if you're newer, uh, this is really a great way just to kind of get to meet uh, folks and stuff here at the church. Um, next Sunday, we're going to be closing our sermon series in Ephesians out with incorruptible love. It's a really cool phrase in the New Testament, love incorruptible. It occurs in one place, and that's at the very end of Ephesians. So you definitely won't want to miss uh, next week. And also, uh, next Sunday afternoon, uh, Matt Klein is going to be leading a small team to install drywall over uh, at the uh, West Chapel. I'm going to send out more details and everything. If you're not getting emails from us and you'd like to, just fill out a Connect card and be sure to just uh, put your email down and say, hey, I'd like emails. Um, but if you're good with a screwdriver or a drill, we could use your help probably sometime after lunch. If you're not good with those tools like me, stay away. We, we, we don't want you there. So uh, you can watch if you like, but we don't, we don't want you uh, putting up the drywall. So um, I'm going to be there to watch. So uh, lastly, again, if you're new or visiting, just take about 30 seconds or connect cards over there by Alex. Um, you can fill one out and also leave your tithes and offerings uh, at the offering box. So if you would, please stand as we kind of close our message out. Uh, with the New City Catechism. We got that up, Slade and Cody. All right, so we kind of like to close these messages out with just working our way through the New City Catechism, 52 questions and answers about you know, basic truths of Christianity. So we have a really awesome question today. I'm going to read the question, and then we'll answer the question together. So question 20, who is the Redeemer? And answer, we'll say this together, the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. You know, the New City Catechism reminds us that our Redeemer is knowable. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is the eternal Son of God who became man in order to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Savior. And while we stand firm in the spiritual armor of God, this is the good news that we're called to proclaim. Let's go with these words from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 5. It says, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, that man, Christ Jesus. Have a blessed week, everybody, and go now in the prayer, the perseverance, and proclamation of Jesus Christ. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.